Just a quick disclaimer before we begin, the views expressed on this podcast are the student's own and do not reflect East Norfolk Sixth Form as an institution. Also, as much as we try, not all of our facts will always be correct. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to East Norfolk's very own politics podcast, End the Loop. After our two-week break, we are back with my co-host Daisy. Hello. And my guests, Cameron and Amelia. Making a reappearance this time and for the first time as a guest, we also have Jake. Hello. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Build that wall. Build that wall. Put on a proper suit. Do up your tie. What Great is it, um, supine protoplasmic invertebrate jellies. Dodgy Dave will answer it now. Uh, the past two weeks have been filled with many political events, but we've chosen to discuss two that Daisy and I most closely followed. Uh, for the first time in nearly two years, world leaders met in person, and for the first time as world leaders, both Boris and Biden met, and all at the G7 conference. Um, Boris called it a huge opportunity to kickstart the global pandemic recovery. One billion vaccines um, have been promised, and leaders vowed to end the pandemic and prepare for the future. They have committed to providing uh, developing countries with 870 million doses over the next year. Um, so although the G7 conference is obviously a great opportunity for international discussion and deals, we've chosen this episode to focus more on climate change and its effects. Um, G7 nations have agreed to set up action on climate change and renewed a pledge to raise 100 billion a year to help poor countries cut emissions um, and the end of coal finance and poor nations. I think the first question to start with all of this is always one which I think everyone's going to have a very similar answer to this question, but do you believe that climate change is the threat that it's said to be through the media? Well, yes. <laughs> In fact, it could be, it, it's probably even bigger than most mainstream news outlets are probably saying, because, you know, you don't want to alarm people, do you? You don't want to be alarmist. Uh, but genuinely an existential threat to humanity. So, you know... That's kind of important. <laughs> I mean, we've got, we're in a bit of a heat wave at the moment. It's absolutely boiling. And, but this, this year the weather's been a bit weird. Like it was raining until the end of May. Yeah. And then the second my summer holidays begin, it began to get sunny, so I'm very happy about that. <laughs> well, I think it's going to rain next week again, so. Yeah, yeah thunderstorms tonight. Mm. I think oh, exciting. Such strange weather events as well aren't just being felt in the UK. Obviously, a couple of months ago, there was a snowstorm in Texas mm. for the first time in a very long time. They've also started having more red snow on the Alps, which people have been using for a while as a sign of climate change, but more red snow is uh, being come out, which is uh, caused by um, the amount of shade switching from the snow. I mean, we can sit here and talk about the weather in the UK because, I mean, it's a very British podcast after all. <laughs> but the, the biggest effects of this are going to be felt in Africa and around the equator. And it's triggering droughts and other extreme weather events. And that's just going to cause a worsening refugee pr crisis. And that is going to trickle up to the countries in the north and very south. Absolutely, yes. So I think it is undeniable as much as... Some people would like to argue that climate change is a threat. Um, but what steps need to be taken, in your opinion, to help start combating this? Obviously, 
none of us are particularly scientists, but I'd just like to know your opinion on what the government and even the individual person needs to do to help fight this. I think blaming individual people isn't the way to combat this because ultimately the main like fossil fuels that are um, are released are by corporations and specifically countries as well like china creates 11,256 megatons of co2 a year which obviously causes climate change a lot more than individual people and to blame individual people and not hold countries and corporations accountable is counterproductive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely think it's a mischaracterization of the issue if you start telling people, if you go vegan, if you use a reusable water bottle, if you use a plastic straw replacement, uh, then like you're gonna you're gonna help. But um definitely I think the main focus should be on reforming these large overarching structures that kind of dictate the, the overall issue of carbon emissions. Um, individual lives are not the problem here. It's these corporations that are spewing out like 70% of emissions globally. It's 20 companies are behind a third of all carbon emissions in the world, which include BP and Shell. So it's not Love it. like, it's not everyone is like equally causing this. You have companies which are causing huge amounts and they're not really held accountable. Rather mm. ironic, considering last week I had a shell worker in Yarmouth High Street trying to convince me they were the greenest oil company around. Really? Yes. How exciting. <laughs> we... To solve climate change, you basically need to, and the world needs to absorb more carbon dioxide than it admit, emits. So Shell claiming that they're one of the greenest companies could be that while their emissions are massive, they're putting a lot of money into carbon capture, planting trees and stuff like that, which whether or not they, they are making a big enough difference, it remains to be seen. But to be able to solve this problem, we do need to move to carbon neutral or carbon negative. Yeah, I think the next step is, it's not with individuals, it's, it, we're in a weird, it's like a transition stage right at the minute where we need to start switching from using fossil fuels and non-renewable sources, which is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is it, I believe it's 2030, the government said all cars are going to be electric or all diesel cars are going to be off the streets. Or... Uh, yes, they said by yeah. 2030 the UK is going to stop producing petrol yeah. and diesel cars. Yeah. Which is, whilst it sounds a long way away, the I think... The problem is getting the infrastructure there for electric cars to be usable is the issue we're facing at the minute. Well, quite ironically about that, today a report came out that's been publicised by the BBC that the UK is currently losing, whatever that means, in the race for electric cars. Do Is it, in your opinion, that perhaps the people with less income are going to be the people that are affected by this you know, race to stop the effects of climate change? Because obviously electric cars are expensive. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the climate crisis is also a class crisis, right? You're, you're getting the disparity between the ruling class and the lower classes. And like the ruling class are the ones polluting and the people lower down are the ones that are having to scramble to make these changes that people are enforcing. And I think definitely it's being unequally distributed, this kind of pressure to change um, with yeah, with such things as electric cars. Electric cars are expensive. The infrastructure is not there at the moment for them to be a viable source 
of transport for a lot of people. Like we have an electric car, but like the the nearest place you can charge that is like ages away. It's miles away. Like it's not viable for a lot of people. And so I think that kind of personal transportation, it needs to be, um, we need to replace that with better public transportation infrastructure, definitely. And electric cars aren't the solution to the whole problem because the batteries that are in them need some rare metals. And the place where we find a lot of those rare metals are in these hot water vents on the bottom of the ocean. And to harvest those metals to make the amount of electric cars we need to meet the rising demand, it could do a lot of damage to that ecosystem. And in that ecosystem is some very rare um, organisms. I don't want to argue the radical vegan point, but... Um, <laughs> I was waiting for the but. <laughs> <laughs> we'll but see where this is I going. think um, that agriculture and deforestation for agriculture play a bigger part than the G7 summit was putting it out to me. Um, because the amount of methane produced in agriculture causes a lot more damage and is on par with Livestock and their byproducts um, account for 51% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And um, and methane is 25 to 100 times more uh, destructive than CO2 in a 20-year time frame. So I think that, yes, you can bring in all of these points with, like, the coal financing and stopping that and then giving more developing countries options to not coal finance. But if you're not also tackling how much destruction agriculture has on the climate, then you're you're not sorting out the problem, you're just sorting out half of the problem. Yeah, um, just going back to a point you had earlier, obviously I refuse to deny that corporations don't play a massive major part in climate change and that. But with you making the point of that perhaps more people becoming vegan would benefit, is that not the duty of the individual? Because, um, obviously, meat will continue being produced as long as people buy it. So presumably that is an individual choice that people are going to have to start making to want to stop that want for the production of it. I think it's, it, is a, it is a funny one because no matter what people will eat meat, um, it's cultural, it's also you have places which are food deserts that you can't be vegan, um, but you need to... There needs to be a way to make it more sustainable. Make it more sustainable. You're never going to make it fully sustainable, but with the way it's produced and moving it. But there needs to be a way to cut that down, uh, so that it doesn't harm the environment as much as it does. Well, there are ways being developed, uh, and seaweed could potentially play a massive part in this because not only does planting seaweed absorb a load of CO two and also lowers the pH of oceans, which is another big problem with climate change. Also, feeding cows with seaweed, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it significantly reduces the amount of methane that cows emit. So that is a potential solution that doesn't involve going vegan. Um, I think, especially with, there was a lot of blame put on consumers and just people in uh, general with um, like plastic straws um, and how everyone should give up, give up plastic straws because of the damage to the environment. But realistically it didn't do the damage that people thought it did. Uh, straws only account for 0.3% of 
the plastics in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and over 50% was um, fishing nets and things due to fishing. So I think if we cut down on that, or at least make them more sustainable, because obviously that damages the sea, and because of the cytoplankton that's in the sea captures the equivalent of 1.7 trillion for the uh, four Amazon forests worth of carbon dioxide. Perhaps making it a point to the next sort of things that are put in place by the government and the world, because fighting climate change is going to have to be a worldwide effort, needs to be instead of more a performative activist sort of, oh, we'll ban plastic drinking straws more using less, using more renewable plastic and more sustainable methods of agriculture. I mean, going back to the original discussion about the G7, this was the first ever G7 that was carbon neutral. Oh, wow. Um, so despite everyone kicking off on social media, oh, Boris has arrived to a summit on climate change in a, in a jet. It's like, well, that doesn't matter because they've offset the carbon, so it, it, the, the impact isn't felt. I was going to say, what's everyone opinion, everyone's opinion here now that um, in the G7 summit that it is now President Biden who attended instead of our favourite in the corner over there, orange man, Trump. <laughs> Obviously, we all know his opinion on climate change. So how much of an impact do you think America now are going to make as they've come back onto the table? I mean, like I said earlier, it's going to be a worldwide effort to combat um, climate change. And America is a big place. Mm. So I think it's good to see it gone from, you know, a president that's pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords to a president that's actively engaging in the G7 conference, which is based around climate change. And you, and you could see it in kind of the mood of everybody there that America was finally back at the table. Yeah. After four years of isolationist America, negotiations were happening again. The world is a the big seven, which kind of is weird because it excludes other massive nations, um, namely Russia. Because it used to be the G8, but they changed it to the G7 just to get rid of Russia. <laughs> oh, I did not know that. <laughs> when was that? When did they decide, oh, we're done with Russia, actually? I you think know. the start of Putin. Oh, I see. <laughs> that was okay. when it started getting <laughs> bad. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but also to deal with nations like China, um, they China has the Belt and Something Initiative, which is basically giving money to poor countries to help them develop with infrastructure projects like roads and ports and stuff. UK joined Germany and the US to declare it would spend hundreds of millions of pounds protecting the world's vulnerable communities from climate change and a handful of rich nations will offer up two billion a year to help emerging economies turn away from coal. I want to come back on that point. Um, Go for it. That, those figures you just said are basically the G7's response to China's programme, but, but basically a, a good guy's version of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should move on to our second topic. Obviously, uh, as lots of the newspaper proclaimed, Freedom Day was supposed to be the end of this month, uh, but due to the new Delta variant and uh, an increase in cases and a worry of the government that it could potentially spiral out of control again, it's been pushed back. Uh, Daisy? Uh, dubbed Freedom Day, um, the day that all lockdown restrictions were supposed to end, has been moved after a spike in cases of the highly transmissible new variant, the Delta variant. Restaurants and uh, pubs in England, while still open, will have to observe social distancing rule, um, rules indoors, limit capacity, and night door, uh, nightclubs and theatres will remain firmly closed. At present, overall new cases in Britain are averaging about 8,000 per day and doubling every a week in worst affected areas. 
positive emissions have also begun rising. Now, people are undeniably getting tired of restrictions and lockdowns. Do you think that the moving back of this Freedom Day is going to affect how willing people are now to work with government restrictions? Well, I think it should have been clear. It was clear from the start that every date that was on that roadmap was a no earlier than, which means it might be a bit later. And the fact that we've got to this point without any delays is pretty incredible and it's testament yeah. to the amazing vaccine rollout and the vaccine figures at the moment about how effective they are, are phenomenal. But we need, do need a li that little bit more time just to get more jabs in arms. I mean, I had my first dose at the weekend, so I'm pretty pleased about that. <laughs> and I think by the end of this week, all 18-year-olds are going to be able to book an appointment. So, so in, I think, in four weeks' time, or five weeks' time, about 75% of the po adult population will be double-jabbed, and the vast majority of the adult population will have had at least one dose. So we will be in a much better position on the 19th of July, and the government has been pretty clear that that will be the last one. Yeah, I think, and also they're moving with the 18-year-olds, um, are they not moving to do single jabs? Are they not now? Is that the next move I believe I've heard? No. I don't. I don't know about that. I'll be honest. <laughs> I think I, I, I maybe wrong. We can blame BBC. You know, we spoke <laughs> to them earlier. Um, I I could have sworn I heard something about that they're trying to move to use um, instead of double dosing, they're just single dose vaccines. A... Not not that it's at that point yet, but I know that that might be the move next for the younger gen for the younger people at least. Well, because is... that's the issue. How how are we gonna get the kids who are under eighteen? Because as we've all heard in the media, we're the ones who are spreading it, apparently. We're yes. the super spreaders. So what are they doing for us is what I would like to see happen next. I think a point as well about that, us being called the super spreaders, is we are the last generation not vaccinated. So yeah. it's kind of hard not to be the super spreaders when we're the ones yeah. who have been vaccinated. And we're being told we have to go into college and we yeah. have to go into school. Or you don't have to wear a mask, but you're also now going to be blamed for all of these people who are dying. Um, the single uh, dose is the Johnson Johnson Janssen vaccine, which is one uh, yeah. dose. And that's being used primarily in America, but there are concerns over blood loss with that. Did you have a point, Jake? Yeah, um, there is a lot of debate at the moment because the Pfizer vaccine has been approved for 12 to 17-year-olds, but the debate is, do we vaccinate them before we start helping other countries? I mean, it's going to sound quite, I don't know how to explain it, but I think it's hard to help another country if there's still a constant risk of our country spiralling back into another lockdown. Mm -hmm. So I think it is really important that before we start helping others to make sure that we are in a strong enough position, that by doing that, we're not going to go into another lockdown because I really think another lockdown would be hard to enforce. Mm -hmm. The counterpoint to that, though, is the biggest risk of having to have another lockdown is if there is another new variant. And yeah. while most of the world remains unvaccinated, the risk of mutations is high. So by vaccinating the rest of the world, you reduce that risk of new variants so that we could avoid lockdowns that way. Absolutely. I think it's equal parts because both of it is a both both side of that argument is kind of a oh, what if sort of thing. And it's sort of like. I think it's a point where we have to weigh up which side is going to be the most risk risky. And I, I'm going to be honest, I couldn't tell you which one. So at the moment, while the Pfizer vaccine is approved for under 18s up from over 12 year olds, 
the JCVI, the Joint Commission for Vaccination, or I, don't think, I think that's what it stands for, um, <laughs> isn't recommending um, vaccinating young people yet. Uh, well, um, with uh, the new Delta variant, um, evidence has shown that AstraZeneca provides a high level of protection against it, but the strain itself seems to be somewhat more resistant um, to vaccines, and in particular the single dose. I mean, that, that is the debate. The vaccine data is phenomenal, and it's just a case of being a bit more patient until we can... Cause it, it's a lot less effective with only one dose than it is to two doses. So it's just getting as many people double jabbed as possible. I, I think it is now just a thing of everyone's got to hold on for a little bit longer for the good of the many. Um, and not do what Android Lloyd Webber has uh, <laughs> spoken about doing. Well, we get to see if he will, but saying he's going to open his theatres whether or not the government lets him. <laughs> well, theatres are allowed to open, but they have to be at reduced capacity because yeah. of social distancing. But for big West End shows, that's not financially viable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think to end the podcast, uh, our final statement will be for everyone to hold on and stay united and keep struggling through. And if you're over 18, to get vaccinated as soon as you possibly can. It doesn't hurt at all. <laughs> first, first hand account. Um, with that, we have to say thank you very much for joining us and thank you for letting us keeping you in the loop. <laughs>